I've got a lot of friends who come and ask me and try to run stuff by me. And I think if you stay committed to it and you dive into it, then nine times out of 10, you're going to be fine. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, got two questions for you. And this is for my fix and flippers out there. One, are your financing costs eating away your bottom line? And two, are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by reducing your loan payments to the bank or private lender? Of course you are, right? You're always looking to maximize the potential of your deal. So here's a solution. We got a solution for you through the crowdfunding platform, Patch of Land. If you're a loyal best ever listener, you know Patch of Land. They've been on the show many times. They've sponsored the show many times. They're back for more because they love you. They want to help you out. They want to add value to your life. And here's how they're going to do it. They have a solution to your financing issue of financing costs eating away from the bottom line, and they want to help you reduce your loan payment to the bank. So here we go. Patch of Land offers a fix and flip loan program that only charges interest on the funds that have been dispersed as opposed to the traditional model of lenders charging interest on the whole loan amount at the beginning. You save a lot of money this way. And it can be misleading when you get your terms quoted to you by the lender at a particular rate if they charge all the interest up front versus upon distributions. Patch of Land's got a document that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper to educate yourself on questions you should ask the lender. Regardless if you go with Patch of Land, you've got to get this document to educate yourself on the questions to ask your lender to make sure you're getting the best financing terms. The documents at patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. That's patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Patch of Land, they can close in as little as seven days and they can help you through this program save thousands of dollars on your deals, make more money, and uh, have a better business and grow your fix and flip business. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Callum Kerr. How you doing, Callum? Good. How are you? I am doing well and nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Callum. He built and sold Multifamily Valet Trash Service Company, which serves over 65,000 units daily. Bought over 20 single-family rentals in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 2008. Underutilized financing. He is a managing partner on three multifamily properties. And he has 24 low-income single-family rentals with a focus on value-add construction management and currently acquiring three mini storage facilities with 444 units in rural Oklahoma. We have got a lot to cover, my friend. With that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, sure. So back in 2008 or so, my brother and some partners and I started a valet trash servicing business where we basically just picked trash up from doorsteps and took to the dumpster. It's a value-add service for multifamily properties throughout the nation, and we focused in the Dallas Metroplex and expanded into 12 states, built it up, sold it to a private equity firm out of New York, and moved on to other things. Since then, got into single-family real estate. That was kind of during the midst of the financial crisis, and we then expanded into multifamily properties, and through that, we kind of got exposure to the other side of the house on multifamily. 
lastly, my family's been involved in many sorters for 25 years, and I kind of helped them out along the way. And we've been looking to buy some mini storages, and we actually just started in that about three or four weeks ago. So currently looking at that, currently growing into that, and we've got some pretty big plans to build that out. Well, let's begin with the Multifamily Valet Trash Service Company. What would you charge, and what was typical for the apartment community to charge the resident? It ranged all over the place, but we found that basically we'd seen a lot of people who had kind of not been utilizing the opportunity to build up ancillary income. And we would go in and suggest that these apartment communities charge their residents trash servicing. And then, you know, basically since everybody else is already paying for trash, why why wouldn't those guys? So we ended up charging somewhere in the range of uh, 10 to $15 a door, and the communities would charge up to $25, $30 a door per month. Mm-hmm. When does it make sense and when wouldn't it make sense for an apartment community to take you up on your offer when you were doing it? I think it depends on the type of multifamily that you're dealing with. Class A properties, obviously, people are kind of wanting those types of services, class the class C properties, it gets a little more difficult. What advice would you have for a property owner who has maybe like a class C property in a decent area, but they're not sure if once they implement the program, if they're going to get the revenue or if that's going to cause a bunch of issues? What we've seen is it varies from market to market. You've got different communities like the Dallas Metroplex that's kind of leading the way on different types of sources of income. And these larger property management companies and owners are exploring different sources of revenue. Places like Tulsa, we're years behind those people in the larger cities. So it's kind of a tougher sell. I think it'd be best to kind of look at what other people are doing in your market, but also take a look at the opportunities that are out there. I've got a couple of Class C communities, and I can't charge valet trash service simply because I just don't think it would work, and they wouldn't want to pay for that. What's the best way to position it to your residents if you do decide to implement a valet trash service? Typically, what I've told people in the past, at least with the property manager and the owner, we used to come in and say, do you guys have friends and family who live in houses? The answer is always yes and say, do your friends and family have options to pay for trash service? And the answer is usually no. So why are your multifamily residents not having to pay for trash service? You're able to get in there and provide a cleaner environment. You don't have piles of trash being stuck outside the building for your maintenance guy to pick up twice a week. And you don't have to worry about taking the trash out to a dumpster that could be a quarter of a mile away. So Really all it is, is it's no different than any other trash pickup service, but the only slight tweak is it's door-to-door instead of at the end of your driveway. And then what if a resident has a bunch of trash, say, for Thanksgiving, or maybe it's a birthday that everyone doesn't have the same holiday? How does that work? From an operation standpoint, the trash management, if you will, is better flowed through smaller volume at a more frequent period. So we would offer five night a week pickup from the doorstep to take it to the dumpster. And with that, you're not seeing as much volume 
-hmm. you're seeing smaller volume, more frequent visits, and you're not seeing huge influx on the dumpsters and the, the compactors are able to digest the trash a lot easier in that form. Now, speaking more high level, you sold it to a private equity firm. Why did you do that? We ended up in discussion with several other large companies and they came up to us and they had some growth plans and they actually merged us into one of the current nation largest Valley Trash servicing company. And the price was right and we were able to just take that and move on. What is the company now, if we were to look it up? Valley Living. Cool. Well, you were investing in 2008. Sounds like you were buying when everyone else was pulling their hair out. What gave you the insight to buy at a time when most people weren't? In Tulsa, everything kind of hits a few years after everybody else. My dad's employee actually was going through a difficult situation with her home and she's going through a divorce and her credit was shot and she was going through basically default. So we ended up contacting the lender and negotiated the sale price, which allowed me to inherit about thirty to forty thousand dollars in equity. So mm-hmm. kind of started out the right way and then I was fortunate in that uh, the market recovered a bit and kind of grew up from there. You've expanded into multifamily. In my notes, I've got 76 units you're managing partner on. Is that accurate? Yeah, we've expanded a little bit, but yeah, that's it's pretty close. And how are you acquiring? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. So I got to a point with my single family. I'm very similar to a lot of your, probably your listeners and wanted to build out my single family portfolio so that I didn't have to have a full-time job and I could just do that. Once I got to that point, I realized that I was effectively changing my white-collar job to replace toilets and deal with residents, and that didn't really feel like it was the best path for me. Mm -hmm. So the only conclusion I could come up with was to either sell off some houses and go back to kind of treating it more as a hobby or to just expand as quick as I could. And the market's recovered, so buying every other house on the block wasn't an option. So multifamily was the only realistic option that I had available. Started looking around, had a lot of people coming to me, asking me advice on real estate and what have you. And before I knew it, I had access to a lot more capital than I realized. Uh, We couldn't find many deals that made financial sense. So we started looking outside of Tulsa and some of the smaller suburbs. And that's when we started seeing disproportionate economics that started making a lot more sense. Can you tell us about the first acquisition of multifamily and numbers and how you found it, that sort of thing? Sure. We ended up making an investment in Skytook, Oklahoma. It's kind of a lake community just north of Tulsa, just outside Tulsa County. There's about 10,000 people there. And it's doubled in size in the past 10 to 15 years. There's currently three multifamily communities in the city. And there's just a huge demand. The property we got was just under a million dollars and 32 units. And the seller had let the property go into disrepair. And there were a bunch of drugs running through there. Most of my properties, I had minor higher income higher quality tenants, but this was totally different for me. Mm-hmm. So we ended up getting in and cleaning things up and building relationships with the residents and 
kind of filtering out some of the bad ones and it's turned around and it's actually worked out great for us. How'd you do it? For me, it's just relationships, getting to know the people. I mean, for me, it's just talking to them and most of the people there want to live in a quiet, safe community. So I built relationships with the local police department, the local city officials. There's a Walmart next door. I went and introduced myself to the, the manager. Went to some of the other businesses in around there and basically just introduced ourselves and told us that we were told them we were planning to come in, be active participants, and everybody seemed really pleased with it. So we're kind of focused on building a reputation. These small towns, word spreads fast. Mm-hmm. What specifically resulted from you meeting with the city officials and what were the city officials' roles or titles? The police chief met with him. They kind of told us a bit about the history, a lot of the stuff we already knew. We have got a good relationship in that we can call them and they call us when they get calls and we've definitely had our fair share of calls. We've also been able to touch base with them and get their opinion on some of the potential residents and people who are hanging around. Met with the city manager about possible expansion and they're pretty eager to support us on that front. And even just the water utility department, we've been able to team up with their billing department so we can kind of keep better tabs on some of these residents who might be stealing electricity or not paying bills and stuff like that. So it's it's been pretty good having the open communication with each other. What about what resulted from the Walmart manager conversation? It was a good conversation, so we went over there and returned about five or six shopping carts and <laughs> just kind of introduced ourselves there. I didn't realize how expensive those things were, so he was really appreciative of that. And how much are they? I don't remember. It was several hundred dollars. Oh, man. But when we were talking with him, he was like, look, I appreciate this because you know, there's been a lot of theft that comes out of their place and goes straight to our apartment community. <laughs> but we've also got a lot of our renters are actually uh, employees there, so he agreed to tell his employees about our property and that we've kind of forged a partnership during their weekly meetings. And he had mentioned that he'd be happy to kind of help push some of his guys, his employees and team there if they're looking for a place to live. That covered the relationships with the city officials and local business people. What about your approach with the residents who were there when you initially took over, how did you approach that? I personally went and knocked on every single door and just chatted with each person, asked them what their concerns and complaints were. There's a lot of information, a lot of drama, but I think for me, being able to sit and chat with each person, I spent a full day there doing that, but it allowed me to kind of build a relationship and I hope they felt that they could call me anytime and for the first couple of months, they sure did. But since then, we haven't had many major issues. And we've been told by the local police department that they're happy. So we think we're doing it right. I imagine that first day when you had a conversation with the families in the 32 units, my guess is that you were able to talk to maybe half of them because the other half either weren't home or didn't answer. Is that correct? Or did you get to talk to every one of the people who were living in the 32 units? Probably a little more than half, but yeah, there were definitely quite a few that weren't there. So did you go back and talk to the others or did you just say that was my day to do it and then I'm going to move on to other stuff? No, the first three or four months we had pretty regular presence. I'd hired a maintenance guy to help me out and he and I were 
kind of going through training. I've done a lot of rehabs myself, so I was kind of showing them how I like to do things. And we had a lot of cleanup to do and built out a maintenance storage shed. So we were on site pretty regularly. So over the course of the first few months, I feel like we were able to meet most, if not everybody. In addition to the relationships and the conversations, you imagine put some money into the property to then make it look better and improve the living conditions. If that's the case, how much did you put in and what did you put it into? It's kind of a struggle. We haven't put much money into it. We came in with about a fifty to $70,000 budget for rehab, but we didn't want to make, complete the acquisition, go in and just start spending money. We wanted to get in, see what we needed to do, and then see where we could best allocate our capital. Once we got in, we were able to increase rents by 20% for new renters, and we were able to build the relationship with the renters. That alone kind of put us in a position to just kind of hold up on making significant investments. We did kind of toy around with a few things. We did a complete renovation of a unit so that we could get a kind of a budget of what it would take to completely redo a unit. And we learned a lot of lessons along the way. But after that, that was about, a, I don't know, $3,000, $5,000 investment. After that, we haven't really made many significant investments. What were some of the lessons you learned along the way on that renovation process? For me, it's a big focus of material. Material and sourcing, we ended up building out a standardized list. A lot of these larger communities that we dealt with, they call out some of these large companies like HD Supply and have them come out and build a list of all their material. But we found that the cost for a lot of the material is kind of excessive. So by acquiring multifamily properties and with my houses, I finally started getting some purchasing power. It's allowed me to negotiate, and I was really surprised to see how much those prices could come down. That first renovation, a lot of our issues were related to figuring out which material we wanted and which stuff we could replicate for all 32 units. And the labor side of it, getting access to labor in and around Sky took, just finding different things that people hop on. We've discovered through the bank teller at the local bank that there's a great vine that everybody chats on, and that's how we've started finding labor. So it's just kind of those weird quirk things where you can't just find everybody on Craigslist or something like that and start getting connected. How much do you buy the 32 unit for? Oh, you said a million, right? You told just me that. under a million, yeah. Yeah, just under a million, 32 units, and your budget for improvements was fifty to 70000 right? Yeah. Okay. And when did you buy that? Actually, about this time last year. About a year ago. What's the occupancy right now? Occupancy, we're actually on a wait list. Wow. Yeah, it's been good. And we're like I said, we're looking to figure out a way to expand. But I think until we expand, our struggle right now is how do we build a brand new building or two next to a 25-year-old building that's not new and increase the rent? probably going to be investing in painting the exterior and kind of trying to clean it up and kind of bring it from maybe a C to a B. Does the thought come across your mind, well, I'm on a wait list, so I should be increasing the rent for the units? Yeah, absolutely. And we have. It's just been really weird. The past month or so, our phone's been ringing off the hook. September, October, we had two or three vacancies. So it's just throttling this has, has been 
kind of the struggle, but we're at that year point. So this is our first time to be able to see all seasons and, and how it works. But we've definitely been adjusting the rate as we can, and we're trying to bring up some of the older residents. But we're also not trying to force them out because we've got some residents who've been there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Are your other multifamily property, what's the next largest one you've got? How many units? 36 units. 36. Next in another suburb. Yeah. Okay. Is that on a wait list? That is a whole different beast. Um, <laughs> All right. That is a full rehab, completely overhaul the resident base, and it is a different type of income-based residence. So we ended up buying this one for about a million dollars, and we allocated about $120,000 in rehab costs. Went in, and it's just everything that you would think of just being an awful environment. It's it's true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We don't have murderers or anything, but there's drugs and there's bed bugs and there's wood rot and there's people who haven't been paying for months. It's kind of fascinating from a standpoint of just seeing how the community operates. It's very tribalistic and we've been happy to deal with that. You bought it for approximately the same per unit cost as the 32 unit. How come it's around the same cost per unit? It sounds like this is much more of a rehab and it's not as nice of an area. It has four more units and the rental rates were higher. So the cost from a cost per unit, it was about 10% lower than the other property. It's actually the exact same property I guess somebody came in town in the 80s and built a bunch of communities, 32 units, 30 to 40 unit communities in and around surrounding Tulsa. So it allowed us to start bulk buying and get better discounts with the higher rental income. Our model made more sense for it to kind of cover those costs for rehab. And we changed our financing structure significantly. That helped out a ton. What'd you change about it? Well, the first deal we went in with... 20% equity and worked with a bank. And the second deal, we built it out with an as-complete model uh, appraisal. And we were able to come in with initial equity much less than that. But we've got a budget that's specifically allocated for improvements. Same lender? Yeah, actually. Local bank? Yeah, I don't dive into the large banks or the small banks. It's kind of a regional. Okay, cool. They seem to be the most flexible. Yeah. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Oh, man. Take action. I've got a lot of friends who come and ask me and try to run stuff by me. And I think if you stay committed to it and you dive into it, then nine times out of ten, you're going to be fine. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got the document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan, and conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. The Real Estate Innovators podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, 
live, and play. Find out more at therealestateinnovators.com. Best ever book you've read? Best ever book? Uh, I don't read many books, so probably Robert Kiyosaki. Just jump on board with everyone else. <laughs> Do you listen to podcasts or listen to any audio stuff or watch YouTube videos at all? Yeah, I'm a YouTube junkie, constantly looking at videos on how to do improvements and make things better. Best ever deal you've done that you haven't talked about with us yet? I think it's going to be these mini storages. We're able to come in and we purchase these things for pretty deflated prices and it's just easy. We just sit there and collect rent for people storing stuff. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Hmm. Probably underestimating the quality of the tenant base in the community on that second property. And how do you guard against that or mitigate that as much as possible from happening again? I think it's probably going to be spend more time in these communities that we invest, get to know people before we close the deal instead of after we close the deal, and just ask a lot of questions and get to know everyone. Best ever way you like to give back? I did the Big Brother Big Sister for almost a decade, and I really enjoyed that. Something I've been thinking about getting back into. I love the one-on-one. I'm not the kind of person who goes out and works with 100 people. I like the close face-to-face interaction. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and learn more about what you got going on? You can check us out on our website, www.aptfacpartmentfacilityservices.com. So check us out there. I want to make sure I got that right. A-P-T-F as in Frank, A as in Apple, C as in cat, services with an S.com. Yeah. Sorry, it's A-P-T-F-A-C.com. A-P-T-F-A-C.com. Got it. Because it didn't come up the first time, but now it comes up. There you are. All right, Colm. Thank you for being on the show, talking to us about a lot of stuff from valet services with multifamily, when it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense, how to position it to the management team who can then position it to the residents, and then why you went from single to multi, and then two case studies on multifamily properties. One of them we went in a little bit deeper than the other 32 unit, and the focus on relationships that you have especially starting out and the results that that has generated for you and the property. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at the Real Estate Innovators. Dot com.